I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Um, I will say one thing before we get going. I, uh, for those of you who have twins or parents of twins, you know this very well. When one kid gets sick, the other kid is soon to follow. So I have been experiencing a lot of vomit the last couple of days. So nice to take a quick break from that to do this podcast. And I have three phenomenal guests and uh, the conversation was terrific. First segment is Lindsey Jones, a senior editor with The Ringer and a longtime NFL writer, including stops at The Athletic USA Today and The Denver Post, and Nikki Jabvala, who's an NFL writer for The Washington Post, covers the commanders, but also national NFL issues. She previously worked at The Denver Post, as well as Sports Illustrated, The New York Times, and The Athletic. And we get into a conversation about um, how one goes about covering the NFL away from your beat. So when you're covering a championship game week or when you're covering the Super Bowl, how do you figure out how to find stories? And they both gave really, really interesting insight into what they've done in the past. They talked about covering Super Bowls and sort of the strategies and challenges around that, what they want in NFL analysts as well as NFL play-by-play people. Nikki gives us an update on the commanders. And then uh, some great stuff on the best statistical NFL sites that you should be following. They're followed by Susan Slusser, longtime baseball writer uh, in the business. She's a Giants beat reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, also an MLB Network insider, as well as a KNBR insider. And she reflects on the life of Gwen Knapp, who was a well-known Bay Area sports writer, as well as a Philadelphia sports writer, eventually moved to editing at the New York Times. And she passed away last week at the very too young age of 61, but a really, really pioneering woman in the business and just incredibly talented. And Susan reflects on her friend. So first up, Nikki Javala and Lindsay Jones, followed by Susan Slusser on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I'm um, pleased to have these two accomplished women on this podcast. Uh, One has been on before. One I know much longer than the one who's been on before, but she has not been on this podcast Lindsay Jones is a senior editor with The Ringer and a longtime NFL writer, including with The Athletic and The Denver Post. Nikki Jabvala is an NFL writer for The Washington Post. Her resume also includes stops at The Denver Post, as well as Sports Illustrated and The New York Times. If you're an NFL fan, you probably have come across their bylines at some point of your reading. And I'm pleased to be joined by Lindsay Jones. Nikki Jabvala, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. All right, Nikki, I'm going to start with you. Since you were not too far from me, uh, I'm in Toronto. You were in lovely Orchard Park last week. So you are an interesting example of somebody who has covered um, games, particularly games of significance, where you're, it's not your beat. The, you know, the commanders are your beat, per se. And so you have to what's called parachute in, right, and sort of figure out how do I do these kind of stories. So it's championship game week. If you're covering Eagles Niners or Bengals Chiefs, what would you be focusing on as a writer? Um, it depends. Um, usually my editor gives us some sort of guidelines going in. Um, cause it depends on if we have one or two people there. But um, my week before is a lot of prep work. I And that's for me personally. I feel like some other writers may go into it differently, but... I want to know as much as I can going in. So I have options when I sit down to write and I'm not looking at a blank screen like, oh my God, now what? Um, so I, I spend a good bit of time like going back through all the game stories of of both teams, of rewatching film of both teams, of um, listening to all the interviews of the, you know, like the previous couple weeks, um, reading old stories. So that's that's it for me. And then when we cover game stories, um, 
of other teams, it's usually a little bit different. Like when they have me cover a game story for the commanders, it's, they want more detail. They want a little bit more play by play, um, which I personally find a little antiquated at this point. Um, but when we, when we go on the road like this for other teams, it's usually more featurey. So, um, which I love cause that opens it up to anything. I can have, you know, a longer lead about the cigar smoking and the Seinfeld sweatpants in the locker room and, and stuff like that. So it, um, it's a, it's a different approach, but I think a lot of it still is the same for me and just prepping and, and kind of looking for that, that one good feature. All right. What about you, Lindsay? Again, you've, um, you know, when you were at the athletic, you were a national writer, so it's not like you had a beat per se, you're, like the NFL was your beat, but when you're with the Denver post, the Broncos were, was your beat. So if you were covering, um, one of these games this week, how would you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and when I was at USA Today, too, I was a national writer, but it was kind of a different approach than the athletics, necessarily, because, you know, at, the, at USA Today, it was very much like national newspaper publication where, um, you know, you really wanted, like, the most important parts of the game, kind of uh, shorter, faster, those type of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you're looking at it for a national audience, it's like, who do people know? Who do people care about? And then also trying to understand our job is we're the experts on these, on these, on the beat, even if it's not our team, even if the Bengals or the Bills might not be our local market team. In theory, we should know what the best stories are there and then find stories that everybody else nationally should know about and figuring out what the most interesting kind of aspect of that, of, of that game is. Um, and when I was at the athletic, I would always, you know, I think one of the, the really interesting things about the way the athletic is set up is that we have beat writers and then there's also national writers. So I would love getting to go to like Los Angeles last year, for example, for like the NFC championship game where I would get dropped in and I would be there with, you know, all of the 49ers beat writers who are incredible, Tim Kawakami, Matt Barrows, uh, David Lombardi, that whole crew. And then with Jordan Rodrigue, who covers the Rams and knows that team better than anybody else in that market. And then you kind of get dropped in as like the national voice. And you can kind of like have this freedom to take like a bigger, you know, 30,000 foot view and say, like, try to put that game into, you know, larger context. What does this mean for the league as a whole? What lessons should we take from um, from this game, you know, I remember from the NFC championship game last year, um, you know, obviously the Niners guys were looking at all of the aspects of why the Niners lost that game. What's next for Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, Jordan got really into all the details of like, you know, how the Rams won that game, what it means that they were going to the Super Bowl. And I, I feel like I pulled back a lot and looked at, um, what really kind of you pull back, but also can get kind of narrow, if that makes sense. And looked at like the Matthew Stafford, Sean McVay relationship and going back, it had been almost exactly a year since they were hanging out drinking margaritas in a hot tub in Cabo and kind of came up with this whole plan together that, hey, maybe this could actually happen and then how they got there. So I always really enjoyed the being able to like try to put one specific game and the games that matter the most into like a larger context of what it means for the NFL and what maybe, you know, casual NFL, NFL fans should care about. And then also putting it into kind of the greater context of like how to move this forward, what it's going to mean for you know, what other teams could learn from it? Um, you know, what are the things that we're going to be remember, going to be remembering five years ago, 10 years ago about this specific playoff game? Nikki, um, you work for the Washington Post, obviously. So it's a, it's a name brand. Everybody, um, anyone in NFL circles, obviously is well aware of your paper. That said, I am curious when it comes to access, if you requested 10 minutes this week with either, let's say Joe Burrow or Patrick Mahomes, does the Post get that 10 minutes or no? Probably not. And why, no. why do you think that's enough? Not in a playoff game. I, the demand is too high, and I don't think we're regarded high enough, um, frankly. Um, I, I think that from what I've seen anyway, I hate to assume, but from what I've seen, I feel like that usually goes to a lot of the more dedicated national reporters like, you know, Peter King, Albert Breer types. I, you definitely see them. And then others will come into the locker room and just get their time, like, you know, Jarrett Bell was at the game. He'll come in. He'll just go get Jarrett Bell. Uh, just go get Joe Burrow. And, you know, and, and that's what you're going to do, really, is if you don't get the access, find a way to get it. Um, but to have it granted to us, no. I, you know, even in the offseason, it's very rare that we can get something like that unless you ask for it like weeks, weeks in advance. And that's, and some of our national writers do, and, and it works well for them. But, 
like for me, if you're on a dedicated beat throughout the season, it's you can't. I've never been able to just swoop in and be like, I would like your starting quarterback for 15 minutes. Your thoughts, you know, like it, it, <laughs> you would be surprised how many people just send those requests. Just what, about, what about the uh, then, what about the ringer, Lindsay? Same question. Uh, I mean, this time of year, probably, probably not. I mean, I'm now as like the assigning editor for this. I'm telling my reporters to shoot those shots, right? I'm saying the worst thing that they can say is no or right. ignore the request completely. Um, you know, Kevin Clark, who I don't know if you've ever had Kevin uh, many um, times, yeah, yeah, on the pod, Richard. But yep. um, you know, Kevin is you know he he worked at the Wall Street Journal for a long time, and he's you know he's kind of at that level where like he can put in the request and he's getting time with a lot of these guys, although not necessarily in the postseason. And honestly, I don't even know how much time like Peter King or somebody is getting prearranged because their time, these teams time is so structured this time of year. And there's a lot of extra media responsibilities that go on with the partners and, and the other broadcast partners. They have so many extra like production meetings and photo shoots and all of these things that are required now starting to get into the, the conference championship week that, you know, they're not adding a lot of extra stuff. The Chiefs are really interesting. I mean, the Chiefs are now in this for their fifth straight year. Right. So like they know exactly how this works. They're not doing anything extra. They're not putting anything extra on Patrick Mahomes' plate, especially this week when he was probably doing extensive rehab and spending a lot of time in the training room. So I bet I bet what's going on in Kansas City right now, I bet they're pushing back on all the extra CBS stuff. I bet they're trying to limit limit stuff as much as possible. Um so it's, you know, it can be a challenge this week, but you know, you'll see, you'll see some people getting a little bit extra, but um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of like sit downs with no. Jalen Hurts and, uh, and company this week. Nikki, um, um, I always look at like, who are the PR staff? How does this work? How experienced are they at these yeah. big, you know, these big stages? Um, it's interesting. Interesting behind the scenes. A look at that. Nikki, um, I want to talk about the Super Bowl, and then I'll go to Lindsay. Um, you guys have covered Super Bowls before. It's, uh, you know, it's sort of, let me think about this in the United States. I would think it's the most credentialed sporting event. It's not, there's more credentials probably for the world cup, certainly the Olympics, but this is just off the top of my head. I apologize if I'm missing something, but I don't think I am. I think, I think this is the most credentialed event, sporting event in the United States in terms of media. So knowing that you go in, let's say it's not the commanders who are the Super Bowl team. Um, like what's the approach there for you at the Washington post? And again, is it a situation where like, you know, you're not going to get any kind of unique access. So you got to really sort of plan and think ahead of the head of the game here in terms of, okay, what can I provide knowing that, uh, you know, I'm not getting anything that the, to, you know, Topeka capital, uh, news person is getting as well. Well, so I've done it both. Like I, I covered a team in the Super Bowl, and that is a lot of work. Um, Super Bowl 50 with the Broncos. Um, that whole week is a lot of work. You're writing up to like two or three stories uh, a day just based on the availability of, you know, network folks and um, NFLPA meetings and whatever the league has scheduled. There's just there is a lot of access and there is a lot of content that you can put out there. Um and especially at that time for the Broncos, there was a ton of related stuff on um, Peyton and Pat Bolin. And there was just so much there. So, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I would always plan out the week based on the NFL puts out a schedule for media and they they let you know on you know TV networks are going to make their analysts available. You can talk to them then and uh, NFL PA meetings going to have it here. Goodell talks on Wednesday, blah, blah, blah. So you just have to kind of plan out your week. And then now with the post, since it's more national, but I'm still kind of dipping in the commander stuff. It's I, I try to find a way to get both. Now I'm helping with national stories and kind of planning with that, with like Mark Maskey and our columnist, Jerry Brewer, um, Adam Kilgore, Candace um, Buckner. A lot of folks have their hand in this and really developing our primary national coverage. But I'm also trying to get stuff related to the commanders, especially when Goodell talks, when analysts talk, you have to kind of do both and kind of really fill up your notebook there. What about you, Lindsay? Again, you've, you've covered, I don't know if you ever covered a Super Bowl where your team was there, but you certainly have covered them, many of them. 
Yeah, never as like strictly as a beat writer. Um, I mean, the same Super Bowl, Super Bowl 50. I, you know, I live in Denver and I was at USA Today at the time. So I was pretty much just like assigned to the Broncos basically as a Broncos beat writer, not with quite the amount of like local responsibilities that Nikki had. Um, but yeah, generally I've always done a Super Bowl either as I did a couple of the Denver Post when the Broncos weren't in it. And then you were always looking for Colorado angles. So that was stories about, I remember, you know, when the Cardinal, my first Super Bowl was the um, Cardinal Steelers Super Bowl and doing a story about Clayus Campbell, who is then a rookie with the Cardinals, who's from Denver. Um, you know, so you kind of were, would look for those local angles. Um, but then as like a national reporter, I think there's a couple different ways that you can do it. The first, I mean, if there's, you know, younger reporters or people going to their first or second Super Bowl, you know, especially since the last two have been weird, you know, access wise, it's all been virtual access. You better not be waiting until you land in Phoenix to have an idea of what you're writing. Um, The access that you're going to get in Arizona will be good for those like short dailies for, you know, newsy kind of updates. Um, You know, if there's quotes that you need to fill out a feature that you already have in the works, but you better be working now and have an idea. And that's something, you know, pulling back the curtain or whatever, you know, now that we know who the final four teams are. And then even a little bit last week when we had eight teams, a lot of conversations about, okay, if the Niners win, what are the stories that we want to write Mm -hmm. and publish that week? Not start working on when we get to Arizona, but like publish early that week when you get to Arizona. Um, And then the week next week is a really productive week. And when I was at USA Today, and then even at The Athletic too, that's the week that I would always go out reporting. Um, You know, a couple years ago when the Chiefs were in the Super Bowl against the Niners, I spent that whole week before going to Miami. I spent that whole week in Kansas City. Um, So that's where I did the bulk of my reporting. Um, Nate Taylor at The Athletic and I did a really fun story where we asked, I don't know, 50 people around the Chiefs, what's your favorite Patrick Mahomes moment that you've ever seen? And it was like, really cool stuff that happened in practice stuff when he was on the practice squad, you know, obviously there were some game moments, but you can get really good reporting done that week at the team facilities in the locker room. There's not nearly as many reporters around. It's mostly the local beat writers. Um, So that was always a really, really good time to kind of flesh out your notebook. Um, And then I would say the one other thing, um, and this is kind of advice that I got from, I don't know if I was strict, like if Greg Bishop ever told me this directly, or if I just learned it from, watching Greg Bishop and the way that he works is that sometimes the best Super Bowl stories don't have anything to do with the teams that are playing in the Super Bowl. They are NFL adjacent or they are somehow related to a team or a player that's playing in the Super Bowl, but they're not about matchups. They're not about, you know, the Bengals offense versus the Niners defense or those type of things because as you said, Richard, it is the most credentialed and covered event. It is saturated. Like if you ask, I think probably any news outlet that covers the Super Bowl, your numbers drop. Like the page views are down, the podcast listens are down, and that is everywhere. Like I've talked to people from the AP to Sports Illustrated to The Athletic everywhere, just because there's so much content out there that like you can't consume it all. So the stories that tend to resonate that happened during Super Bowl week are things that are different, that are completely like, I remember a couple years ago, do you remember this, Nikki? Greg Bishop wrote a story about Brock Osweiler. Yes. Like, I do. It was like, this that. super weird. Like I remember yeah. going out to dinner with Greg that night and being like, I could, I never thought I would want to read a story about retired Brock Osweiler during Super Bowl week, but it was like the best thing that ran that week. Yeah. So I will always because we both remember it. I yeah. yeah. Tells you something. I wrote. I wrote on Cooper Cup. I can guarantee you, nobody will remember that story ever. Yeah, everybody had written about Cooper Cup at that point. And it's hard because, like, I you know, I'm sure you're this way too, Nikki. Where like, I'm really proud of stuff that I've written during Super Bowl week. Um, like some of my favorite stories, stuff that I worked really, really hard on. But it isn't necessarily the stuff that like got shared around a lot right. that other people exactly. remember because yeah. there's just so much you know, there's just so much stuff. So, you know, I will always, you know, I would always plan my week and look at my calendar as saying like, okay, well, what's kind of a weird story or like, what is something that's like kind of related to the Los Angeles Rams, but isn't about Aaron, you know, a profile of Aaron Donald. Like, um, so I think, you know, a couple of years ago, I did a story about like the history of their, um, cause they wore their throwback jerseys. You remember in the Super Bowl against the Patriots? Um, 
they wore the, um, the the blue and yellow before they were actually had switched to that. So they had to get like special approval to do that. And did a story about like the guy who created the helmet, like the, the helmet design. And it was so fun. And I like loved doing that story and found really interesting stuff. And then last year it was, I did a story about, um, I kind of started it as like, I'm going to do a Von Miller story. Nikki, you and I both have covered Von Miller a long time. You know, he was in the Super Bowl, And I was like, so I approached it initially saying, okay, I'm going to do a story about Von Miller. And it turned out, turned into a story about Demarius Thomas um, and their relationship in the Super story. Bowl, kind yeah. of the Super Bowl 50 team, you know, reeling a month after, you know, or six weeks after Demarius Thomas had passed away. And like, I was really proud of that story. And like, it, it kind of resonated Super Bowl week because it wasn't about like, how does Von Miller match up against the Bengals offensive line? It was Super Bowl related, but not actually about the Super Bowl, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Nikki, um, you know, this is obviously a media podcast. You are in a NFL stadium almost every Sunday of the season. How much, uh, how much NFL do you watch in terms of uh, like, do you get a chance to watch the Thursday night broadcast or the Monday night broadcast? I imagine you're probably not watching much on Sunday. Yeah, I, I, I do actually. So I subscribe to YouTube TV. So I have, I bring two screens. So I have YouTube TV watching the broadcast while I'm watching the game so I can hear it and watch it. And then when I go home, I'll rewatch the entire broadcast. And then the next day, or as soon as I get the all 22, I'll watch that. Um, so I try to get as much in as I can for each game. And I, I always think it's helpful to listen to the broadcast while watching the game because they're usually a couple plays behind. So I can like in my mind kind of process what happened a couple games like in between, you know, every play. That's just how I work for some reason. So- <laughs> so the reason I ask you that and I want to follow up is so as someone who right who marinates in this on a basically a 365 day mm-hmm. basis what what do you want from a NFL television analyst and what do you want from an NFL play-by-play person it's a good question i my favorite analysts are the ones that explain the game that explain it that tell you why they did this why they didn't do that and why this happened um I, I realize not everybody loves him. I really enjoy Tony Romo because he can explain the game. I've never heard anybody love the game as much as him, um, but he knows how to explain it well. Um, and I like the play-by-play guys that, you know, say as as much as needed, um, not too much. I, I like where there's that, um, that even flow where it doesn't sound like, you know, the, the play-by-play analysts or the color analysts are talking on top of each other or interrupting each other. It's, I just want to know what's going on. And then I want somebody to tell me why that happened and, and why they ran that play, why they didn't run that play, et cetera. Um, so I, those are the ones I love the best. Lindsay, Sam, for you, what, uh, you, you probably watch more games this year than uh, I'd imagine in some other years. So what do you want from an analyst and a play-by-play person? He says hello. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because uh, uh, Nikki is showing Louis? us uh, we got, one got of her one dogs. Of on the, what kind of dog here? is that, Nikki? It's a golden doodle. I thought this so. is this That's is a very pro doodle podcast. So <laughs> mine are not in the room right now, but they were probably scratching at the door, ready to come in. I know um, the dog is bigger than Aaron Donald, Nikki. Yeah, That's he's a, very he's a good, good seventy five pounds. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think similar. Um, although I do on Sundays, I mostly watch Red Zone, so it's like chopping in and out. So it's actually kind of nice getting to the playoffs where you actually get full. I will watch like full broadcast start to finish. Um, I'm also a, a mom of a small child who is typically like doing dinner and bedtime and everything during the primetime games. So my primetime game watching is usually pretty chopped up. And then I go back and watch and listen later or by all 22 when you don't have the, when you don't have the broadcast. So um, a lot of times the postseason, or at least recently the postseason has been my like reintroduction to like full broadcasts. Um, You know, I like, uh, I like announcers who speak with authority and like the the institutional kind of knowledge to know what's happening, the context of history. Um, I really like Joe Buck as probably a controversial yeah. opinion. But, no, I agree. Um, I think it's fantastic. I just like that it, it just like it it always feels to me like this is a big moment. And um, you know, I like when the energy matches the moment. You know, that was the big criticism of the Michaels Tony Dungy broadcast a couple weeks ago, where it just felt like it was you know, super, super, super flat. Um, you know, so I, you know, I don't, I don't need like 
Gus Johnson level of excitement all the time. But like in the big moments, I want to feel that from the guys that are in the stadium um, or women that are in the stadium. Um, you know, and I think I look at broadcasters, what I like about broadcasters, the same way I do a lot of times with like beat writers and the writers that I like to read is tell me why this matters. Um, and then show me and explain to me what I can't see. Um, give me a sense of what you're hearing, you're feeling, and then, you know, explaining why everything matters. So, you know, I, you've probably talked about this a bunch recently, Richard, I'm guessing, but I've been blown away by Greg Olson. Um, I think he's been kind of a revelation throughout the season. He's gotten better every broadcast that I listen to. And I'm like kind of riveted by, I, I just think it's, it's really good. And it, they might not have like the voice recognition of like, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman or, you know, Chris Collinsworth or whatever at this point, because we just haven't been listening to them as long, but I'm learning something every week. And we could talk about this later, but like Fox would be nuts, I think, to like let Greg Olson go at this point and just plop Tom Brady in the booth if Tom Brady well, is Well, yeah, ready. he's had an excellent year. They won't let him go, but the, the, the I, I wouldn't call it a problem, but the reality, Lindsay, is that if you're paying Tom Brady... Mm -hmm like that kind of money, which means that that contract is done above the sports division. This is done by Fox Corp, yeah. Lachlan Murdoch, et cetera. Like there's no possible way that Tom Brady would go into Fox and not be the number yeah. one NFL. Like you, you would not pay that guy. I just am not convinced that he's going to be really good at it. I don't you, know. You may be right. And like know. merit wise, I don't think it's even an issue because if it was based on merit, you would take the guy who's had an excellent year, who is partnered with a guy in Kevin Burkhart. Like they are, they're a good team. But the realities of the economics are that if Tom Brady decides to work for Fox, like he's going to get that job. A lot of that hire, in my opinion, also is less, I shouldn't say less. It's it's about the game, but it's also about Tom Brady being yeah. in business with Tom Brady. Do you know what I mean? It's like he's, uh, it's not just for the three hours of the Sunday game. It's Fox Corp wants to be in the Tom Brady business. Yeah. Well, and hopefully so, it goes better for them than the FTX Um I don't think it can go worse. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm still, I believe Brady will eventually be with Fox, but I would say when I thought once upon a time, that was like 85, 90%, I may be sitting in the 60, 55%, you know, and I'm, I still think he'll take that job. He'll never last 10 years in yeah. my opinion, but I think he will eventually see the booth. And if you're Fox, if you could figure this out, you know, keep Olsen, stash him away, pay him a crazy amount of money just to hang out. And when Brady sort of moves on, then, you know, you go back to Burkhart and Olsen and, and you're, you're there. Nikki, you want to say I, something? Well, I'm always curious because I didn't love Greg Olsen last year. And I agree that he's been, you know, much, he's, gotten, he's gotten a lot, yeah. lot better, but I'm always curious when guys come in and if it changes throughout their career, how they, yeah. how critical are they of, former teams, former coaches. And that was one of my great with question. Olsen is I, you know, just because I cover a Rivera team, you know, how would he, how critical would he be of a Rivera led team? And I never thought he was completely honest on the broadcast. So I was, I was like, eh. yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think he's pretty, yeah. I think he's softer on right. Ron Rivera than, than others. The one thing that's always, that's always been interesting. And, you know, I'm going to use your expertise. I don't want this to be like a media geek out session here, but the one thing that's always uh, been interesting to me, is that there really is an advantage if you can find someone right off the field who's good because they've played against the players and they know the coordinators. And this is one of the reasons, Lindsay and Nikki, that I think Olsen has really been good this year is that like I think he like he's schemed against most of this league still and he's played against most of the league. And that's what made I, I, I like Aikman. I think he's he's good still, and I'm always impressed by the fact that the guy played quarterback, whatever, 30 years ago, right? And he's still pretty good. I think that's what's hard for a lot of these analysts is to just stay current. The only way to stay current is to really, I feel like, really throw yourself into the film, right? Because you just can't rely anymore on, you know, you played against uh, whatever Belichick, you played against uh, you played against X. But that's those are good observations, Nikki. I, I like Olsen as well, but I think. I don't think he's gotten to the point where he's um, um, comfortable sort of maybe being critical of those he played with or those he's tight with, which is very hard yeah. to do. Well, that was always um, my question right. about like if Peyton Manning would ever be a really good like actually in booth analyst, because I don't think he yeah. he reveres the quarterback fraternity so much that I don't right. know if he would ever. He's entertaining, though. He's You know what he with Peyton? You know, you two know him much better than me. He's such a good he diagnoses plays so well that I feel like that itself maybe overcomes his 
inability to be critical of the position. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, I mean, maybe it he works. Was really it just works well. Manning cast. I mean, yeah, they, I think it maybe it works more entertainment. Well in, yeah, I think it works well in that format. I'd be really right, curious right. if, like, if he was actually in the booth, like, if it would be more formal. It yeah. would be if it would be a little different. Yeah, I mean, I like he that he can be loose. Yeah, I think he wants empire building, which is you want a different job than just being an analyst. I think he's he's looking for one B as in billion per se. So we'll see how he does that. All right, Nikki, I have to take advantage of this. Let's talk about, I mean, America's team, the commanders. <laughs> uh, not really. Um, so what is the latest with um, the sale? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just sort of say it. Like, I think like most NFL fans, I would like Dan Snyder out of my NFL life. But like, the guy's not being punished. He's going to walk away with whatever, $7 billion. Whatever. Like, that's not a punishment to me, but... You know, the, that seems like the end result of all this. Do you, um, for sort of very big picture, where do, where does this stand right now and where do you expect it to go? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I, at this point, all the team and Dan Snyder have said on record are what they put out in early November, the release, that they're exploring pot potential transactions that never even actually said that they were selling the team. But all indications that are, from what we've gotten are that he is selling the team in full and it's moving forward. Um, you know, the details of a sale are always pretty tight-lipped and I think they're especially so um, this time around. I think there's a feeling that, you know, he is he is intent on selling and nobody wants to kind of rock that boat or, or sway him or, or have him change his mind at any point. Um, so it's been very quiet. I think a lot of the bidders are the same bidders that, you know, were in on the Broncos and didn't went out, you know, the Todd Bowley, the Josh Harris, um, you know, and, and there were, there's a lot of, I don't want to say erroneous, but there, there's a lot more chatter because there's not a ton of concrete news. I mean, everybody is trying to dig and search for something. So you'll always hear reports about deadlines and bids and who submitted one, who didn't. And there's not actually a, you know, a real deadline and you don't necessarily need to submit a real bid. Um, so there's, there's still the feeling that, you know, Jeff Bezos could be a part of it. He could swoop in late and because of, his vast net worth could just blow everybody out of the water. If he wanted to, there's still a, a feeling of, well, does he actually want the team? Would he want Seattle if that comes available? Um, so there's, there's still a ton of uncertainty over where it's going to lead, but there's still a belief that, you know, that this is going to happen and that it could happen fairly soon. And by soon we're talking maybe March, at the earliest, I would think when owners could approve it, um, but that's that's really soon for a, a franchise to be sold, especially one of of this value, which could be anywhere from like six on up. I would I would say um, six one, billion. Yeah, one one follow up on this. Um, like I understand the um, vanity part of why you'd want yeah. the commanders let me you, you're an nfl owner in an incredible city in a city of power brokers politicians and stuff like you walk down the street like you are right. somebody like you know jack Ken cook etc what i don't know and maybe you don't know but you're gonna have a much better analysis than me like if you buy it at that price like can you one day make a profit on it like that's such a crazy amount of money and i know the nfl uh, it seems like you make your money when you sell the franchise, right? Because that's when you get your valuation back. But at that kind of price, like, would you, if you're Bezos, would you be buying this for any kind of profit or are you just buying it simply because, like, it's an incredible toy, it's an incredible vanity play, and, and you get to be one of the 32 who own this, uh, who are in this club? Well, I think when you're talking Bezos money, like, pretty much anything is a vanity project. I mean, when you have that kind of money, I yeah. mean, what is $6 billion? to him really you know right. um but i think this market absolutely i think just in talking to some folks across the league and even associated with the league that d the dc market business-wise because it's the political you know it's a, it's a political hub of the country there's there's economies sort of is what it is but you know it, it there is a chance in this market to really you know, there could be a windfall here. I, I think this this market is viewed as, 
you know, uh, one of the big ones. It was once a marquee franchise of the NFL and it's just kind of eroded over the last couple of decades, but it still has an incredibly loyal fan base. Um, I, I think one of the more sticking points will be the stadium, obviously, and, and where that's going to be, because that's another issue with this team is, you know, it, it's still up for grabs in, in the three jurisdictions in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. The, you know, D.C., doesn't even own the land at RFK and that's where a lot of people would want it. So there's a lot of um, underlying complications with this one, but I, I think this team in particular, I mean, it could be a windfall. Absolutely. I think you could make a ton of money with this team. I mean, look at Dan Snyder. Yeah. Great, great point. Lindsay, uh, two more quick ones and then I'll let you both go. Let's start with you here, Lindsay. Uh, what, what are the best statistical NFL sites right now? If I'm an NFL fan and I want like some really cool, uh, like next generation kind of stats, or I just want like, I want beyond like, uh, passing attempts, passing completions, et cetera. Where do you go? Yeah. Someone like you, where do you go? Well, first? um, so at the athletic and then at the ringer, I'm Nikki, I'm not sure if you guys have it, but, um, there's a site called true media that yep. you have to pay for and they provide, I mean, it's, it is by far like the best, um, yeah. advanced analytics because you can run reports and find like literally anything that you want where you can find, you know, uh, um, EPA on third downs against third string cornerbacks. I mean, you could literally find any specific wow. stat that you want. Um, it takes a lot of work to get good at it because there's so many different ways you can do it. Um, but it's a tremendous resource. I know it was for us at the athletic. It was a huge deal that we were able to get a contract, um, with true media at the ringer. It's been, you know, our, our, our writers love it and thrive off. And it, it's, it really has helped, I think, inform our writers and then make their writing smarter for um, for fans. So True Media, I can't sing their praises enough, but that's not accessible to the general public. So I would advise reading sites like The Washington Post and The Ringer and The Athletic that have access to these, these types of tools. Um, but Football Outsiders, um, DVOA, incredible. Um, I mean, and that is, there is a subscription element, I believe, to Football Outsiders, but there also is some of it that's free. Um, you know, obviously there's uh, pro football focus, although a lot of their advanced stuff is behind a paywall. So to get a lot of their, like the really detailed stuff, you have to, you have to pay for that. Um, and then you have to, you always just need to know like where are the stats coming from sometimes, like who is charting it? How are they yeah. kind of creating these numbers? Right. And then, you know, I would say next gen stats from the NFL, like their own kind of advanced stat stuff is pretty cool. And they're finding ways to make it more accessible and digestible you know, they do a lot of like the heat maps and obviously the dots that are really fun to watch. And that's, you know, available basically immediately after plays. So they don't do next gen stats doesn't do every game live, but like if there's a primetime game live and you happen to have your computer around, like pop open the next gen stats, watch live page, and you can like watch the dots kind of live. You can see the heat maps of where quarterbacks are throwing. So, so that stuff is all, um, that's all. It's a kind of an added extra fun way yeah. to watch the game. Yeah. yeah I would cool. say, Nikki, you any yeah, other? True media is, it's the best. Um, I also pay for it myself on the side on sports info solutions. Um, they do a lot of yeah. good stuff just with it, with coverages and um, tendencies of a lot of teams. I think they do a good job and, you know, you know where they're getting the data. So it's, it, you know, it's more reliable. Um, so those two are really good. And I also, I really like it, you know, what some of the guys, they posted on Twitter, but they have their own data site and it's all coming through the next gen data. Like, um, you know, I, I think what um, I'm blanking on it. Um, I, ben Baldwin, he does a lot of great stuff. He puts out a lot of fun info after like every Sunday, really. He'll yeah. put out all these updated charts of some really great info on teams. Um, so, yeah, I, I think those are the main ones. Um, yeah, but definitely like, look up Ben Baldwin. Follow yeah. him on Twitter. His website is tricky, and I always get it wrong. And if you type, if you swap two of the letters, you get sent to, like, I would, a I site that you're comparing your work. It. it was like, it's a great website. I'm like, which letter? What, <laughs> so what just order look, is it? Look up Ben Baldwin, because, yeah, because the website gets really tricky because it, your, your work computer might um, blow up. Um, and then there's also, there's um, a guy named Lee Sharp that you should look up yeah. on Twitter too, where he does these really, really cool interactive um, win probability charts um, and a lot of like combining win probability and betting data and all this kind of stuff. That's really, really yeah. cool. Um, but it's like in GIF format. Oh, good. Oh. It's rbsdm.com yeah, no, is Ben Baldwin's site. Yeah. Yes. 
Just don't right. mix up any of the letters. Yeah, <laughs> don't mix up the I, letters. <laughs> yeah, most yeah. of the stuff I didn't know. That's really helpful. Awesome. All right, last one. We'll start with you, Lindsay. This is, uh, I mean, you could literally do an hour podcast on this question alone. So, um, so I'm giving you less time to answer it, okay. uh, by the way. Uh, but, you know, it's something I think about, and I imagine it's something that you and Nikki think about a lot as well. Um, we, um, we all watch the NFL. None of us are going to give the NFL up. Um, it's, it might be the, the best television game in the history of the United States, just based on sort of how the limited supply of games, how it fits into a television window, how you can view it. It's all arguable, of course, but it's a pretty good argument that the NFL can have. That said, you can love the game and also understand that the, the game has issues, whether it's uh, injuries to players and how those injuries are treated and um, does the team have the best interest of the players or not. Nikki has talked about the commanders. Uh, so we have a lot of horrible owners, quite frankly, out there who may have a lot of money, but um, not a lot of grace, <laughs> quite frankly. And there's, a, you know, I could, I could enumerate all the issues that the NFL has, and there are many. So how do you navigate that? How do you, what do you, you know, what, what would you say to fans who love the game, but they also hate some aspects of the game? Cause you and Nikki probably fit into yeah. that. Like you, you made this your life. You obviously love it. You can't do it if, unless you love it, but yet you're also really, both of you are really smart and you also know like the issues that exist with this league. So how do you navigate that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you, you can comp compartmentalize a little bit like the actual games that we're watching on Sunday and, you know, loving the, like the beauty of the sport and like the science is maybe not the right word, but like the, you know, the chess matches and all of the, like, everything that goes into like a specific play and a specific game plan and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I do think it's important to think about it, you know, the sport critically and not just turn off your um, like the human kind of parts of your brain uh, while you're watching. And, you know, I think one of the things that certainly got me into this business in the first place, and I think this is probably true for Nikki as well too, is that, you know, the best part is like the, the, the athletes themselves. A lot of times, like, you know, I, I there are people in our, in our business that I think all they care about are like the X's and O's and the scheme stuff. I always looked at it as like, I want to tell the stories of the people who are playing this game. Like, who are they? Why are they here? Why are they great? Why are they good at the specific scheme things that we're talking about? And if you always keep kind of that human element at the forefront, um, you want the game to be better and safer and the league to be better. And, you know, I talked to my friends who are not in sports, you know, my, my, my mom, you know, my other 40 year old mom friends a lot who a lot of them have kind of turned off, you know, they've, they've turned off football and, or they're not as into it as they used to be, or they're not into it at all. And, you know, I think one of the things that I always talk about and, or think about is that um, there are those aspects that we really love about the game. And then it's our job, kind of like the NFL media, the not, the not fanboy media to push the league and these teams and the owners and, the doctors and the media side, everybody pushed them to be better and to hold them accountable for, you know, who they are and what they are to our society. And, you know, I think that it would be really easy to just like watch what happened this year with Deshaun Watson, for you know, the, the, the race to sign him to a record setting contract and trade yep. him and all of that stuff. And just be like, throw your hands up and be like, I'm done with this. Like they don't care about women. They don't care about, um, you know, the safety of people, you know, any of this stuff, you know, I think it'd be really easy to do that. Um, but we're here kind of pushing them to say, well, why did you do that? And this is not okay. And like, let's make this better for the next generation or next season or, you know, 10 years, 20 years now to make sure that the sport that we actually love is able to stay around. Because if we kind of just let them keep going, not being held to account, like it's going to get worse. And we want to yeah, we love it. So we want to make it better. And writing critical stories or and asking difficult questions isn't because I hate football, or I hate the NFL, or I hate player X or team Y. It's because we love it. And we want it to be better. And we want them to do better constantly. So I don't know if that answers the question of what how fans should look at it. But I hope they know that there are a lot of people that we love this sport in the game as much as you do. And we're pushing them to a higher standard and to be better. 
Same. We'll end yeah. with you, Nikki. Same no, question. I mean, I feel like I share a lot of the same gripes as those fans, especially when you see a lot of the mistakes repeated over and over and over. Like, you know, I, there was a ton of backlash on this incident. I thought we resolved that. No, we're back at it. <laughs> um, th- that's that's a continuing frustration. I feel like we in media have a luxury of sorts in that we get to talk to so many different people and there are a lot of really good people in the league. They don't always make the headlines because it's usually the bad news that makes headlines, but there's a lot of really cool people in the league. And that, you know, I know Lindsay and I have both been fortunate enough to get to know. Um, I always said Demarius Thomas was one of them. Um, yeah. You know, I think a lot of guys from that, that Broncos locker room were among them. Um, coaches, executives, players, um, and, and I think continuing to highlight some of the work that those guys have done um, and the things they do within the league is important to the future of the league as well. Um, and I, I, that's, that's the part I try to lean on when a lot of this stuff happens where it's, it's just like, what are we doing? Honestly. Um, and I just try to remind myself that there, yeah, you hear more about the bad, but there still are a lot of really good parts about this game and a lot of good people involved with it. Um, and it is amazingly improved from years before, um, you know, there's still those moments that kind of stick with you. I feel like each time, each moment sticks with you a little bit longer. Um, but you know, I, I do think there has been improvement and, and there are, again, those people that just, you know, kind of keep it going and remind you why, you know, why you're in this and why fans are too. I really enjoy this. Uh, I appreciate both of you guys being on. Lindsey Jones is a senior editor with The Ringer and a longtime NFL writer, including stops at The Athletic, USA Today, and The Denver Post. Nikki Jabvala is an NFL writer for The Washington Post, whose resume includes stops at The Denver Post as well as Sports Illustrated and The New York Times. We all knew way back when that Nikki was going to be a big star when she was at uh, Sports Illustrated, and she has, she has, she's ascended even our predictions. So I'm happy to see you uh, in a good position. Although both of you left the athletic, you jerks. I wish you were still uh, working. We were all co-workers once once upon a time. (laughs) We were all co-workers once. All right. Well, listen, enjoy the next couple of weeks. Uh, Nikki, I uh, did not ask you, but will you be in Arizona? I will be. Yeah, I'm going to KC in Arizona. Okay. All right. So people who are listening to this, please read their – their work, uh, I guess in Lindsay's case, listen. Uh, she'll probably be on one of the Ringer's 17,424 <laughs> NFL a, there's a good, There's a good chance so of that. Catch, <laughs> good chance of that, right? Yeah, we'll be able to catch her there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're both two of the most talented people in the business. I'm very happy to have them on. Lindsay and Nikki, thanks so much. And uh, I'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, thanks Richard. Okay, as I said at the top, Susan Slusser is a Giants beat reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, but more than that, uh, has long been a national baseball writer and voice. You've seen her on MLB Network. Those of you in the Bay Area probably seen her uh, or listened to her on KNBR. And I am pleased to be joined by her on, unfortunately, a somber topic, and that's the death of her friend and colleague Gwen Knapp. Susan, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Richard. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about Gwen. I'm not sure how much people knew Gwen nationally, but uh, in her heyday, she was as good as it got in terms of being a sports columnist, um, but also that rare columnist who really was more about kindness in her personal life and really no ego at all, which is, as you know, <laughs> kind of unusual. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rare. So this is where I want to start. Um, you know, obviously, I, I was aware of Gwen Knapp's work. Um, I did not know her personally. But, you know, the thing that has stood out to me in reading the tributes to her, and I'll let the audience know that um, she was a prominent sports reporter and columnist, the Philly Inquirer and San Francisco Chronicle. She Her last job was uh, editor on the sports desk in the New York Times, and she passed away last week at the very, very too young age of of 61. Um, I think that's what you hit, Susan, is that like, you know, Gwen Knapp, if you read her work, like this is somebody who obviously we could have seen on um, ESPN as a contributor, you know, uh, I don't want to use this as sort of like the 
the the the the top of the food chart here, but you know, an around the horn panelist, like, and this could have been a national writer that everybody would have known. But it seemed to me that um, that's not the path she wanted. She wanted to sort of she did her work and she did it really really well in these two different cities, but was not a self promoter. Can you uh, can you tell my audience just a uh, uh, about her from um, from your perspective. Yeah, I think that's I think you hit the nail on the head. I, she was more about telling the story and less about talking about herself. She really was uh, and brave. You know, she was one of the very first, if not the first person to really go after Lance Armstrong um, for uh, using, uh, you know, performance enhancing drugs. And he responded um, with threats, uh, legal threats, uh, absolutely went after her as hard as he could. And she did not back down. And of course, um, time showed that she was correct. But that was how she was. That's how she approached all of her work. She was meticulous. Uh, and that's what it was for her. It was either telling a really heartfelt, thoughtful story or explaining why something really was wrong, you know, either with sports or the world at large. I mean, she was a big thinker, Harvard educated, a varsity athlete herself, a swimmer, uh, and um, really just relentless, absolutely relentless. But then if you knew her in person, you never would have suspected this because she was kind of scattered and daffy and um, uh, funny the best laugh ever, a uh, great hang, somebody who always knew where to go after the games and would stay out till last call. And then, you know, uh, go back and, and agonize all night about what she was going to write for a column and then turn in something absolutely beautiful that she had slaved over. You know, she'd chew her hair. She'd uh, kind of talk to herself while she wrote stories. Uh, so a little bit of a neurotic, tortured writer, but man, the end result was just beautiful. But she was absolutely one of a kind, Richard. I can't, I kind of wish everyone knew her, you know, like actually just knew her personally because she enriched everyone's life who knew her. And she was just, she was silly and fun and just not what you would expect given her background and her, her position. Tell me, you, you, since you are a Bay Area based, um, she really like was a chronicler of Barry Bonds, right? And during like sort of the the craziness of the Bonds era in San Francisco. And I think really enjoyed it. Was I can tell you as someone who sort of was watching this from New York from afar, it was like always interesting that the San Francisco maybe fan base sort of thought of Bonds differently than the rest of us did. But she was right in the middle of this, right? Covering all this stuff. Yeah. And you know what? Because the, the Chronicle was uh, the paper that ha was the Balco paper and that put some of the columnists right. in something of a strange position, you know, dealing with Bonds on a personal basis. But she's one of the people that Bonds, I think, really got along with okay and really respected. Um, she she always felt like they, they got along pretty well. And I think she wanted to be fair to him. She did, she did not pull punches when it came to, obviously, the way she went after Armstrong and the way she dealt with performance-enhancing drug use, period, across the board, Olympics, what have you. But I think from a personal standpoint, she always wanted to be as fair as possible. And I do think that Bonds appreciated that and uh, her intelligence and her insight. So, again, a little bit of a, you know, Mark Fainer-Ruwada, who was um, part of that Balco team, is, was one of Gwen's very closest friends. Uh, so she was negotiating sometimes a, a tricky line for a columnist with your paper and your buddy reporting something. And then you're trying to maybe personalize things a little bit, too, while also saying, like, look, I'm, I'm not in favor of doing any of this stuff but this guy has also been very important for this community and for this organization um and he i think he he did it seemed like he always um sort of treated her a little bit differently than maybe some of the other columnists as a result the um from everything that uh, the people who knew her closest said like she really like um she worked in nuance she was quirky these are usually characteristics right that um uh, they, I think go underappreciated, right? You know, like like the people who are loudest in the business, as you know, you may hate them, but they're compensated, right, for that hate. Yeah. Um, those who are nuanced and quirky and a little off center, um, in my experience, don't get as appreciated as as others. No, exactly. Uh, and yeah, she was. She would. She would write about. Um, 
you know, topics that maybe everyone wasn't interested in in the time. She was writing a lot about women's sports and um, Olympic sports and things like that at a time when I think there was a lot less interest. Uh, uh, thankfully, some of that is changing. Uh, but I remember our, our former colleague, Ray Ratto, um, used to write like these kind of fake going away pages for people when they left. Uh, and there right. was one where, you know, one of the topics was something, something 49ers. And then Gwen's column was what the left-handed swimmers think uh, <laughs> on the fake page, which is kind of funny because she did always, she, she had a lot of imagination. Um, uh, I, I was just reminded that she uh, collected everyone's game stories from the uh, 2002 World Series that had the Giants winning before, of course, the Angels came back and won. She got everyone's sort of first drafts when the Giants were still winning. And then the Chronicle ran, went up running them about, I, don't, I think, maybe on the 10-year anniversary. But she was the one that was sort of had the imagination to think like, man, we all spent a lot of time writing this amazing Giants win the World Series, uh, and so did all these national writers, and so did these Angels writers. Let's get their drafts from that and then see what that looks like at a later date. Yeah, I, I recommend uh, Ray Ratto's piece uh, uh, on Defector, which really I thought captured her. Michael Bamberger wrote a, a really beautiful piece for the Fire Pit Collective. He was uh, close with her and uh, talks about... Uh, uh, sort of Gwen's relationship with golf. Uh, Bamberger, who I worked with briefly at Sports Illustrated, obviously a very well-known and longtime uh, golf writer. I thought Kevin Draper did a, a really nice job with her um, New York Times obituary. One of the things that Rado hit on, Susan, I think you can appreciate this, was that Gwen was not, like, she's not old enough to be one of, like, the pioneering women's journalists, like... Um, you know, Jane Gross or uh, whoever you want to put into, uh, you know, that Claire Smith or whatever. Right. But she but she's also not like in she's not 25 or 30. Right. Where she's working in today's era, which is different. She like really, to me, are, are one of these um, journalists who sort of bridged the the I mean, total um, inequities that women sports writers had to face of the seventies to, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but if nothing else, at least access now is not, not necessarily gender specific. And so she, to me is just an interesting figure in sports writing history, right? Cause she's, she's, she's the bridge as opposed to being like thought of as like the pioneers or thought of thought of as like, you know, today's working, right? Yeah. Um, she was definitely kind of in that second wave. Um, you know, I, I would say I'm in that and Killian's it now. We're all kind yeah. of about the same age range exactly. came into the business right around the same time. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the fact that she was hired as a columnist at, at a pretty young age at the San Francisco examiner coming from the, uh, Philly Inquirer, um, our former boss, uh, Glenn Schwartz, who came over to the Chronicle after after the merger, um, talked to her on the phone and said he was just so taken with, you know, her ability to formulate opinions. Um, and, and, and as you mentioned, kind of the nuance, you know, the managing to hit on uh, a many different themes, but in such a cohesive way uh, to support it argument or to provide even better context on, on whatever the topic might be. And he got that just on the phone. And he, he basically wow. hired her kind of sight unseen based on clips in a phone interview. And, um, you know, she was nothing short of spectacular. Now, she could drive editors nuts because she would think and think and overthink and as i said kind of like rip her hair out and want to go back and do so you know she was kind of when the examiner was an afternoon paper and you could write all night she would write all night i mean it's probably not the healthiest lifestyle but the, the work product was amazing <laughs> um but there was i think a little bit of that you know because here i am a woman in this industry and not still not very many of us i have to be better and I think she felt that pretty keenly. And I think that's one of the reasons she was sort of something of a tortured writer. Yeah, that's well said. Um, I will say that, you know, obviously, I think if you read any of Gwen's pieces, you'll get a sense of her talent. But people have been sending out, at least on social media, her piece from July 4th, 1993, Beautiful. where she wrote about this uh, 
uh, like the one of the longest doubleheaders in uh, in baseball history. It finished the second game of the doubleheader finished at 4:40 a.m. Just uh, you know, one of these just crazy quirky days. It is like as good a like. I don't even want to call it a game story because it's like that's probably doesn't do it justice. It is just such an incredible piece of writing off like this incredibly long game with beautiful details and just elegant sentences and perfect ways to use um, the quotes from the players, including an incredible kicker. Um, You know, I know you know this, Susan, and you're a very fine baseball writer yourself. Like you read that and you're like, this is like a different kind of talent. Like most people most people in our business could never have pulled that off. So that's, that was just, I know you're familiar yeah. with this piece. That is just a beautiful oh, it's piece. Phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Uh, it's, I mean, I, I, it's one of those ones where you look at sort of an envy and you think like, how did she think to speak to this person? I think it's, <laughs> I, it, honestly, it reads like she's, she, she maybe talked to everybody who was still left in the stadium <laughs> yep. and, and she got just absolute gold from everyone you know, groundskeepers and umpires and fans and, you know, anyone you can think of. She, she had talked to the broadcasters. It was, it's beautiful and funny and uh, interesting. Every, she mined every little tiny detail she possibly could. And then you're right, just absolutely knocked out of the park in terms of, uh, terms of the writing. Yeah, it is, it is like to me, the people who can write like a quote unquote game story like that, um, they're just phenomenal talents. It is a very, very different piece, but I would put it in like the 10 best game stories I've ever read. You know, Death of a Racehorse yeah. by W.C. Hines may be the most famous uh, quote-unquote game story. And obviously that's about uh, the death of a horse, uh, a death of a thoroughbred on the track. Um, but it's the same kind of Gwen Knapp captured like the same kind of tiny details in her game story on the Phillies that day that only to me like the Giants could pull off. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is just interesting to me, and I wonder if you can provide some insight on like what her thinking was. But you know, she eventually went into editing, and obviously got a job at the New York Times, a very, very famous newspaper. Um, all the people who she edited had nothing but incredible things to say about her. They seemed like she was very beloved by the staff. I'm sure part of that is because they respected her as a writer, and they knew that she had gone through some of that same experience. But what was her thinking in, in terms of leaving? day-to-day writing and then taking a, like a job behind the scenes. Well, I think it was multifold. Um, I think, you know, she, uh, first of all, as I mentioned, a completely neurotic writer, um, drove herself nuts, but she also had, um, despite that, as I mentioned, she had the best relationship with editors, um, even though she could drive them also nuts. Uh, I think she really appreciated the work they did. So I think kind of cutting back on the writing, um, was probably good for her mental health. I think she, um, a really appreciated editors because she knew what hers had done for her over the years. And also when was a helper. Um, she was one of those mm. friends who would rush to help without being asked. She would come to an event and just do something uh, of her own volition. She, she was always like, even going through her cancer treatments for, for more than a year, she was always far more um, concerned about whoever it was she was talking to than herself. I was going through some um, really pretty awful personal things and she, I felt they were, you know, so much, so diminished in, um, in uh, uh, compared to what she was going through. And she always had far more concern about me and wanted to know about me and what was going on with me that it was almost laughable. And I think that more than anything, kind of drove her to want to help people. And I think in her business, she thought editing, this is what I can do. I can, I can make a mark here. I can help people. I can make stories better. I can think of um, potential profiles and projects and make a, one of the world's great newspapers a little bit better. And I'm sure she did that. I, the lucky people that got to work with her as an editor, that's something I never got to do. And I wish I had working with her as a colleague was, was akin to that because she always had such good ideas and input. But um, I think that that was more than anything, probably at just her desire to help. You know, as a, uh, as a writer, as an editor, as a sort of an editorial thinker, she, she lived in Philadelphia, San Francisco and New York, yeah. right? So three different cities, three major news towns. Um, and, you know, she passed away in, in Manhattan. So that was her last stop. But um, even her personal journey, you know, that's really interesting. I, th- I think I certainly I guess I can't speak for editors, but I feel like writers are really served if they have lived in in different cities. And and she really 
lived in three pretty distinct, interesting cities in the yeah, United States. Yeah, she relished it. You know, she she always knew where to go. If you popped into town, she had a, you know, a cool little uh, lunch place nobody else knew about. Uh, she always knew everything that was going on, uh, you know, stayed in touch with everyone. Just amazing. And, um, you know, I mentioned her kindness um, and talking about different cities. So um, she also was very kind with animals. Um, she had a uh, cat person. Uh, had numerous cats. She went on Philly uh, to Philly on a road trip once and came back with a street cat named Gracie. When when, when <laughs> one of her um, uh, her ex boyfriend died, she took his cats. I mean, she just an absolute heart of gold. But yeah, um, to live in cities like Philly and New York, San Francisco, maybe a little we're a little bit softer out here, but uh, that, that did not change her in any way. It maybe only made her uh, even more loving and kind. And those are some those could be some rough places for a journalist. Yeah, I know, Susan. She's now. I'm going to have to think about, differently now about Harvard when you're using words like kind and genuine <laughs> and nice. It's, uh, all right. The uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you is: Is there anything else you wanted to to add? You obviously. Um, you know, you knew her, uh, I am sure, very, very closely in, in in San Francisco. And we talked about sort of her different um, her different stops um, at 61. Uh, and uh, the cause was lymphoma. It's just horrifically young. Um, I don't know how much longer she wanted to work, but if she's editing on the Sports Justice New York Times, I mean, we could be looking at another decade, basically, of, of quality work if that's what she wanted. It's really a, it's a huge loss. I know this is never... Um, and I don't know even how to phrase it. It, it doesn't make the pain better, but I, I at least appreciate when there seems to be like a genuine outpouring of someone who was decent and talented and good. I saw that with my friend Grant Wall, and I saw that with Gwen Knapp. And, and it doesn't make the death feel better, but at least it makes you appreciate that this was someone who had an impact yeah, on life. Yeah, and I I didn't know Grant, but I, I, I feel I think maybe like some other people in sports journalism feel now about Gwen, like I didn't know him, but man, I, wish, I really wish I had because of all the things that I read and, and heard after his tragic death. This is, this is I think, very, like just... Gwen, just a wonderful, like late in my mom's life, she she befriended my mom and she would go stay and hang out with her. And they, they both they, they both found that absolutely delightful. It was, uh, you know, my mom, a, a widow and, and elderly and not getting around so well. And Gwen would just go and hang out and chat with her all day. I mean, that was just sort of the person she was just just absolutely lovely, interested in everyone. Absolutely interested in everyone and um, never, you know, except for in print, never an unkind word to say about anyone. And if she did it in print, she had a good reason and it was backed up and it was nuanced. And um, she was just a absolutely beautiful person. Such a loss. I feel so lucky to have known her. And I, I know everyone who was friends with Gwen feels exactly the same way. Just a massive loss. But also we were we were really blessed to have known her. That's well said. Uh, Susan Slosser is a uh, uh, baseball writer for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I appreciate her giving me a little bit of time on uh, the life of Gwen Nat, who, um, who passed away last week at 61, but as you just heard from Susan, just had a massive impact on, uh, on everyone she met in the sports journalism business. Uh, we lost a real giant there. Um, Susan, thank you so much. I know the topic is... Uh, you know, you want to talk about Gwen, but at the same time, it's 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 a really big loss. So thank you for coming on to talk about your friend, and uh, and I wish you all the best. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Lindsey Jones and Nikki Jabala of the uh, Lindsey Jones of the Ringer, Nikki Jabala of the Washington Post for their insights and uh, their expertise in terms of writing, covering the NFL. And thank you to Susan Slusser of the San Francisco Chronicle for remembering Gwen Knapp, a uh, probably an underappreciated giant in this business. Um, I want to thank uh, Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. And thank you for listening. If you like these conversations, uh, please go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That's how the podcast continues. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.